All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Tra la la, tra la la la, tra la 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 la. Hey, guess what? It's not the Banana Split Show. It's the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, and we're getting federal on today's Rodcast because today in the inshore offshore digital studio, I'll be talking with Congressman Rob Whitman about everything from federal fisheries policies to strategies for targeting cobia. Representative Whitman continues to be one of the most vocal advocates in Washington for anglers' rights and for fisheries conservation. An avid angler himself, we're going to try to get some insider tips for targeting a variety of species straight from Capitol Hill. If congressional insight isn't enough for you, I'll also be counting down my top 10 cobia lures, and I'll be offering up my review of Four Roses Single Barrel Bourbon on the bourbon break today. So make sure you're registered to vote because this week's broadcast is primary. Ha ha, see what I did there? And we'll be making every effort to remain bipartisan and to work across the aisle. Hey, speaking of intersections of politics and fishing, did you know that a whole bunch of our U.S. presidents were dedicated anglers? Of course they would be. What's more American than fishing? George Washington, Washington himself was an avid angler, and he regularly targeted shad, char, herring, and bass in the Potomac River. In fact, before going into politics, Washington was a commercial fisherman with a fleet of boats who exported fish to the West Indies. Now, Washington wasn't alone. Thomas Jefferson was a well-known naturalist who loved to fish. There even, there's even this great portrait of him holding a trout. In fact, we could argue that Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark West to scout fishing sites for the president, since part of the mission of the Lewis and Clark expedition was to document where they found plants, animals, and specifically fish. Hey, what about Grover Cleveland? He spent a good part of his career fighting the image that fishermen were lazy. He even wrote a book called Fishing and Shooting Sketches. And after his second term as president, he fished upstate New York in the summers and Florida in the winters. What about Herbert Hoover? He was another fishing president who wrote a book about fishing. His book, Fishing for Fun and to Wash Your Soul, is a magnificent reflection on recreational fishing. Hoover, of course, was famous for his opinions on the values of different kinds of fishing. He was adamant that dry fly anglers sit atop the angling ladder with wet fly anglers and spin casters below them. Hoover claimed that bait fishermen were the bane of the angling world. Hey, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was another of our great fishing presidents. He was an avid saltwater angler whose tarpon prowess is well documented in a, in a book by Texas guide Barney Farley called Fishing Yesterday's Gulf Coast, in which he recounts his many trips with FDR. Had enough? Well, there's more. We can't leave out Dwight Eisenhower, who as a kid in Abilene, Kansas, was dedicated to carp, bullhead, and sunfish fishing. And after World War, after World War II, though he took up fly fishing during his two terms as president, he took more than 40 trips just to go fishing. It's rumored, too, that he even tried to get Richard Nixon, his running mate, to learn to fly cast. There's an image for you. Of course, Jimmy Carter was a devout angler. What farm boy from Georgia wouldn't be? Carter's dad introduced him to fishing along the Satilla River when they fished for bluegill, sunfish, and crappie as kids. Carter's fantastic book, An Outdoor Journal, is a great insight into his dedication for fishing. 
Carter is also known to be an avid fly tire and to have an extensive library of fishing books. And I'm going to boast here a little bit because I've been trying to get President Carter to be a guest on the Rodcast, but due to health concerns, he's not been able to do any interviews recently. However, when my contact with the Carters asked him if he would be willing to do a Rodcast interview, he immediately recognized my name and said he had my first fishing book, a book that's called Distance Casting, sitting there on his shelf at home. Do you have any idea how great that made me to feel to know that a U.S. president actually recognized and knew one of my books? Wow, just good stuff for me. Of course, both Bushes were great anglers. The senior of the two was a dedicated catch-and-release angler who frequented the Florida Keys often. In fact, he was often referred to as the angler-in-chief. He was inducted into the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame in 2016, and in 2019, he was inducted into the IGFA Hall of Fame. George Jr. was also a striper aficionado, and he had his uh, forte. He and his father were both also dedicated uh, bass anglers as well. If that's not interesting enough for you, back in 2007, both President Bushes were together when they took Vladimir Putin to Kennebunkport, Maine to go striper fishing for a few days. There's a rather famous picture of Putin holding a striper alongside the Bushes. It's rumored, too, that George Sr., who at the time was 83, drove the Russian leader on a high-speed boat ride. Man, how things have changed. And Barack Obama took up fly fishing as well. He described the activity as helping him find peace in the hectic life of the presidency. His trips to the Adirondacks, to Montana, and to other fishing destinations are all well documented. So yes, indeed, we have had a few fishing presidents. Over 20% of our presidential population thus far have been committed anglers. And personally, I think presidents who fish bring a little something else to the Oval Office. And if you really want something to think about, think about the whole voting block we could have if all 60 million plus registered anglers in the U.S. got behind a single candidate. You know, for generations, we've told kids that they can grow up to be anything they want to be, even president. You could grow up to be president. And that's a fantastic thing about the great USA. But what's even better is that in this great country of ours, you don't have to grow up to be a, a, a president. You can grow up to be a fisherman. You can fish without growing up. In fact, I think that fishing may be one of the greatest preventatives of adult onset available today. Disagree? Well, that's fine. You can always campaign on behalf of whatever you want to so long as you vote. And right now, you should vote for the Rodcast by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast. You can also email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or use the comment option on any of the platforms through which you've accessed the Rodcast if you have an opinion you'd like to share with me. So with that, let's get congressional and talk with Representative Rob Whitman. I am honored today to have U.S. Representative Rob Whitman in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. Representative Whitman has served as a representative for Virginia's first congressional district since 2007 and is one of the foremost champions of recreational fishing currently serving in Congress. He formerly chaired the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, and he has served on the House's Natural Resource Committee. He currently serves as co-chair of the Congressional Wildlife Refuge Caucus, and Representative Whitman has authored and endorsed numerous bills in support of recreational fishing measures and conservation efforts that affect anglers. Whitman authored the Chesapeake Bay Accountability and Recovery Act designed to, quote, enhance coordination, flexibility, and efficiency of restoration efforts associated with the Chesapeake Bay. 
And after several senators sponsored a bill to reauthorize the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, Whitman introduced a version of the bill for House members to consider. As a dedicated angler with a penchant for striped bass, he's also been one of the most important advocates, not just for protecting stripers, but for, for protecting the Chesapeake Bay, one of the most important nurseries for stripers. He's a graduate of Virginia Tech and holds a master's degree from the University of North Carolina in public health and a PhD from Virginia Commonwealth University, also in public health. I got to pause and I got to say, every time I hear mention of VCU, I remember this great donut shop that used to be across the street from the VCU campus, I think over near Cumberland Street, but that was a while ago. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So before being elected to the congressional ranks, Dr. Whitman served for 20 years with the Virginia Department of Health, where he served as an environmental health specialist and was field director for the Division of Shellfish Shellfish Sanitation. Americans have, of course, over the years celebrated our fishing presidents, and today I'm thrilled to have a fishing congressman in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. Representative Whitman, thank you so much for joining us on the Rodcast. Oh, it is great to be with you on the Rodcast. What a a great honor and opportunity for me. This is great. Well, thanks. Well, we usually begin our conversation with a bit of origin story and a background question about how fishing becomes part of our guests' lives. And I've heard you talk about your father being an avid angler and hunter. And so I'd like to ask you to talk about those introductions to fishing. But I also want to ask specifically about a story I've heard that in college you spent your summers working on a fishing vessel. So could you give us a bit of a congressional angler's origin story? Absolutely. Well, just just as you spoke of, my dad was an avid outdoorsman, and I remember many weekends going to not only freshwater, but saltwater locations to go fishing. And I developed my passion for fishing at a very young age, and that translated over to um, my summer jobs. So I actually worked as a mate on a charter boat out of Oregon Inlet down in the Carolinas, worked on a mate on a charter boat in the Chesapeake Bay. So I had great opportunities to uh, to travel around, to get to meet a number of different fishermen and, and get to know the, uh, the, the trade, so to speak. And I, I can't think of any place in the world where there is a, a higher degree of skill with um, the fishing community than the charter community there in Oregon Inlet and in Cape Hatteras. And, and my, the gentleman who was the best man at my wedding, he and I, shared obviously the same interest. He was a mate on a charter boat there. Uh, so it was fantastic. The folks that I got to meet there, lifelong friends. In fact, uh, John Bayless is one of those. John's gone on to form his own company, Bayless Boat Works. John and I grew up together down there. Just incredible uh, opportunities to, to learn from those folks like John Bayless and Chip Schaefer and Nevin Westcott and, and uh, Sam Stokes. I can go down the list. Murray Cudworth, all those folks were instrumental to uh, to me in learning about fishing and not just learning about fishing, but you know, fishing is, is really not just about catching the fish, but it's the relationships that you develop with others. That love that we have to be on the water. I, I tell folks, you know, uh, there, there is no bad day on the water. So it's, it's great to have that opportunity. So for me, that was the foundation of, of what, spawned and developed my interest in fishing and then wanting to become better at fishing. I'm always wanting to learn. There's always new techniques and opportunities out there. So I just uh, continue to do that. And, you know, any, any chance I get, which is not as often as I'd like, but any chance I get, I like to get out in the water. 
That is a great beginning story. And I'm going to have to watch myself and not get nostalgic because I spent a tremendous amount of my teenage years at Oregon Inlet uh, yes. at the fishing center there. Uh, yes. I remember being a little kid and, you know, blue fishing off the uh, underneath the bridge there, but I spent every summer there. Yes. So, that's just a great beginning story, but I want to jump ahead a little bit. You did a sure. video back in 2015 that introduces people to your congressional office. And in that video, you show off an impressive array of mounts. I see a yellowfin tuna, blackfin tuna, some mahi-mahi, a big old speckled trout or two, bluefish, a couple of bass. I mean, of all the congressional offices I've visited, yours may be the one that closely re most closely resembles a Johnny Morris Bass Pro Shop with all the taxidermy. <laughs> You've also got a bunch of hats from ships that were commissioned in your district, and there's a real sense of maritime tradition in your office. Now, I grew up in the Hampton Roads Tidewater area, so I get that saturation of maritime culture is so central to the region. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you focus so much of the atmosphere of your office on fishing and maritime culture. Well, I, I do it because it is central to the district that I represent. It's central to the first district. So you always want, I think, your office to represent uh, the people that you represent. And, and, and fundamental to the first district are the resources that we have, uh, both in the water, that is the marine resources, but also the things that the water enables, like our United States Navy, like our U.S. Marines, like our shipbuilding industry. Uh, so, so that's great. And then we have other representations, too, of other elements of our United States military. We have, as you said, we have some 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 jets on the desk there to represent, you know, places like Langley Air Force Base. And then we have also some munitions that come from Radford Arsenal to represent the United States Army. So it's just really reflective of what <clears throat> makes our district great. Uh, the, the 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 resources that we have uh, in the Bay, the marine resources, but also the incredible effort that folks put forward for our United States military, whether it's people in uniform or the civilian sector. So that's really what I think is important to be reflected in the office. And I, you know, I want the office to be something that is uh, unique to the first district. And just as you point out, not only are there fish on the walls, but I've been specific to, to, to paint the walls blue, a, 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 uh, an azure blue, just like you'd see in, in the water. So uh, we, we try to make sure that things are, are matching the scenes of what you'd see if you travel through the first district of Virginia. That's great. That's fantastic. Now, one of the other things you've got on your wall is a plaque with a mounted Menhaden. And frankly, that's a big old bunker on your wall. In fact, I yes. think you said that's the largest Menhaden ever recorded. That and is. Menhaden are a critical component of the Chesapeake Bay ecology. And there's been a lot of discussion emanating from your area about the role of Menhaden and the policies that have been absent in protecting Menhaden and other forage fisheries. And here I'm thinking specifically about Senate Bill 1484, the Forage Fish Act, and the 2020 Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission's unanimous vote for ecosystem-based management of Atlantic mm -hmm. Menhaden. And of course, and forgive me here if I've got the districting wrong, but Reedville is in your district, correct? Yes, that is uh, correct. That's yes. home to Omega Protein, the largest industrial harvest of Menhaden. Mm -hmm. um, so could you talk about men, the Menhaden conundrum we're seeing right now? Sure. Well, you know, Menhaden is one of the most heavily regulated fish anywhere on the face of the earth. 
Uh, and the good news is that it's it's being managed at a very sustainable level. As you know, there are some changes made in Virginia where now the Virginia Marine Resources Commission uh, oversees the management decisions that are made in Virginia. The Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission manages the, the regional um, uh, efforts that go into managing menhaden populations. Uh, the menhaden populations are healthy. If you look at biomass, and of course, my background, not only did I major in biology, but I minored in fishery science. So in looking at you know, all of the data there, looking at the entire biomass of the species, looking at year class biomass, looking at fecundity, which is the amount of spawning that happens, the egg mass that goes out there. That's another factor about how healthy the fishery is. The, the, the fishery itself is incredibly healthy. And as you know, under Magnuson-Stevens, they're required to manage the fishery under what's called maximum sustainable yield, which is this is the number of fish you can take without there being any other impacts. There's been discussion too about, well, shouldn't some of those fish uh, hang around so that predator species can have them, not just for the, for, for the human side. So if you look at overall mortality, uh, the way the species is being managed right now, I think is, is, is just the way it should be managed. And that is, you look at the mortality that happens from fishing, that is man, you look at the mortality that happens from predation. And as you look at what ASMFC has done, they have actually set that limit below what would be a maximum sustainable yield number. As you spoke about the, the holistic approach to managing the species as part of an ecosystem looks at all those things, not just mortality from fishing, but mortality that happens in predation. So those upper predators that we know uh, we want uh, to be <laughs> eating those menhaden and we want them to be growing, we want them to be out there so that we can enjoy are all part of that. And, and, the, and the, the harvest limits that have been set you know, fall well under those parameters. So actually harvesting fewer fish, which means more out there for the ecosystem, more out there for the success of the biomass to make sure we have good spawning classes. Because as we know, occasionally there's a, there's a bad year where you don't get good recruitment. That is, you have spawning, but you don't get those, those little fry that actually recruit to become adult menhaden. So if you have a bad recruitment year, the good news is the way the numbers are being managed is we can sustain population through a bad recruitment year. We can sustain population for other environmental factors. I think those things are, are critically important. So, you know, we, we've tracked what happens with Menhaden very closely. As you know, the, the catch effort, too, on the, on the entire East Coast is now down to, I believe, uh, seven or eight boats. So it's at a very manageable level. There's a cap on how many fish can be caught in the bay. There's a total cap on the entire catch in the, in the, in the Atlantic. All those things, uh, again, uh, well below with a safety factor, and they're well below what is necessary to maintain the species and uh, to maintain the species, not just for longevity, but also for biomass, for predation, that ecosystem model that, that, that we talk about. So I, I, I think things are, are in really good shape concerning the management of the, of the species. Listen, I understand, you know, some people just don't like commercial fishing, but I would argue commercial fishing is a, a, a very viable and responsible way to be able to use the species. And listen, I, I, you know, represent a district with a lot of commercial fishermen, but I'm also recreational fishermen. So I've always worked to seek the balance between both of those interests. And what I look at, too, that I think is incredibly important to emphasize, and that is what all of us, recreational fishing community, commercial fishing community, ought to be, ought to be singing from the same sheet of music is what are we doing about water quality? 
because the carrying capacity of the environment and being able to sustain more fish is a factor of water quality. And there's no better example than the Chesapeake Bay because anoxic conditions that occur in the bay during the summertime greatly shrink the water column that can sustain fish. I mean, it used to be a, a, great, a great indicator species was spot. I was talking to somebody about it the other day. If you look at the bay, the pelagic, which is the upper part of the water column, is, is healthy. You see a lot of fish in the pelagic areas. What you don't see that we used to see when you and I were young were benthic species, spot. And that's one of those, another prey anchor species that there's nothing in the bay that doesn't like a spot, including, including human beings. <laughs> so, but you look now in the places where you can find spot are more and more limited and that's a benthic species. So they rely upon having oxygen in that bottom level. They rely on healthy bottoms, which means good populations of, of, uh, of mollusks, that is oysters, oyster beds, and the polychaetes that are there that are their food sources. So those things are incredibly important. What I always point to people is all of us, everybody that's interested in marine resources ought to be singing from the same sheet of music and hollering from the top of the mountain that what are we doing about water quality? What are we doing to improve the anoxic conditions in the bay? That is, what, how do we make sure every summertime we have more water that can sustain life? A you know, great example is spot populations, but another example is things like flounder populations. There are places in the bay, I remember I used to go, as little as 15 years ago, we could go in the middle portion of the bay and catch flounder, and, and it, was, it was great. But you go to those areas right now, the flounder aren't there. And the live bottoms that we used to see aren't there anymore either. So we all have to work to improve water quality. And when we do, we increase the carrying capacity of the environment to grow more fish, to have more fish for all of us. And that's a good thing across the spectrum. That's fantastic. And I think you're, you're dead on about the water quality thing. And I'm glad you brought up spot. I'm going to come back to spot in a little while mm -hmm. when we're talking, but I also think it's important, particularly with a lot of the research that's going on right now, the importance of the oysters, fish, oyster fishery and what they contribute to water clarity and water cleanliness right now as well. So mm -hmm. a lot of great research going there. I do, because we're talking about Menhaden though, I got to ask you, what's your favorite way to fish bunkers for rockfish? Oh, listen, my, my favorite way is to go out uh, in the in the fall of the year when when you can find the rockfish in schools. And I love to go out and, and live catch some some bunkers, whether it's through a cast net. A lot of times they're deeper. So sometimes you have to take a snag rig and snag them. But but put a couple dozen in the live well. And what we'll do is instead of using weights with them, we'll hook them right by the anal fin. And when you do that, Menhaden is going to swim down. And what we'll do is we'll get over top of these big schools of, of, of rockfish and just drop a, a bunker overboard and, and with it hooked around the, at, at the anal fin, it'll swim down. And what we find is we don't want to drop it in the middle of the school. What we do is we drop it right on the edge of the school because the bigger fish will be on the edge of that school of rockfish. And if you want to go in and catch a good sized rockfish, that's, that's the way to do it. Or what we'll do too uh, and this is now during the time in Virginia now where the rockfish season is closed, is if you can get them that time of year is to go in the lower part of the bay and we'll slow troll. So we'll put, you know, sideboards out, side planters out, and we'll slow troll some buckers through there. And I can tell you, if there's a rockfish anywhere around, <laughs> whether it's uh, slow trolling or whether you're fishing on the outskirts of that school, they're going to eat that bunker. So Excellent. I've taken notes and when I'm back... <laughs> We'll be, we'll be, we'll be slow trolling the second Island. So uh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> 
So you've been a great supporter of the work that the American Sport Fishing Association does, and you recently appeared with our mutual friend Mike Leonard on a webinar hosted by ASA that was also published as part of Mike's ASA podcast, The Politics of Fish. And during that webinar, and you just mentioned uh, the importance of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, and during the webinar, you talked about one of the important matters you're working on now is the reauthorization of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which, if, it, if I recall correctly, was last reauthorized in, what was it, 2006. Could yes. you talk about why this reauthorization is so important right now? Well, it's incredibly important because the last time the Magnuson-Stevens Act was reauthorized, there was a lot of focus on managing fish populations in, in various ways. You know, one of them looked at the commercial industry, which it should. The, the, the challenge now is how do we make sure that there's also a focus on the recreational aspects of managing the fishery? And, and listen, and that includes a lot of different things. And we want to give fisheries managers tools to manage in different ways. And I talked a little bit earlier about the concept of maximum sustainable yield, and that is managing a fishery so you have the, the largest number of fish, the largest biomass. But there ought to be ability in there to manage fish in a variant uh, a variant of ways. I want to make sure that fisheries managers aren't relegated to just a single measure. So it may be in some areas you say, listen, we, we maybe want to manage it differently. It may not be for total numbers of fish, but it may be, how do we manage to have more bigger fish? So folks that want to go out and catch a 50-inch striped bass will have the opportunity to do that. Or somebody that wants to go out and catch you know, a 16 pound plus cobia says, I've got a pretty good chance to do that because of the way the fisheries are managed. So, and, and some states will do that, but I want to make sure that those opportunities are there and making sure that we equally look at recreational and commercial aspects and how Magnus and Stevens is reauthorized. And, you know, Don Young was a dear friend of mine and we miss him dearly. Don Young was a, a true patriot when it came to fisheries. In fact, he was the one that 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 put forward the bill in the House that was the companion to the Magnuson-Stevens Act. In fact, I always laugh. Um, um, uh, Don would make a joke out of that because he introduced that bill with Representative Jerry Studs from Massachusetts. And he would always make fun and say, well, it really should have been named after the two House co-sponsors, not the two Senate co-sponsors. And I won't go any further than that. Don, Don would always make, make, make fun of that. But uh, he was very, very forthright about what needed to be in there. In fact, if you look at what will happen with Magnus and Stevens reauthorization, it's actually Don Young's bill. That's the House version that's, that's moving forward. So incredibly important. We have some great opportunities there to really make some advances and, and, and allow some innovation and creation in how we manage fisheries and also how we define stocks. And the big thing that we have to do that is a, a, a big gap in what happens is, is under Magnuson-Stevens, I believe there are 500, almost 530 different species that are required to be managed. Now, listen, we don't gather data on all those species. And in many instances, we divert resources away from species that really need to have more data gathered and more timely data gathered. So what I hope happens in this too is to, as we look at the requirement of how to manage species, is that we devote more attention and resources to gathering data and timely data 
and that we codify there, and I've been very adamant about this, that we codify there that the data that is collected by recreational fishermen, while it is considered from a scientific realm to be anecdotal, doesn't mean that it's not valuable. And I think that recreational fishermen ought to be part of that, that network that gathers that data, that gets put into fisheries management models, and that gives us the information necessary to properly manage those species. And a great example is Gulf red snapper. You know, for years, the trawls were being done in places where red snapper don't live. Fishermen were saying there's red snapper all over the place. Finally, there was a closure there when um, a piece of legislation that, that my colleague Garrett Gray's from Louisiana got through to say, listen, we want an independent entity to do the analysis. So by law, it was taken outside of National Marine Fisheries Service. They then took the data and used it to, to put in a more reasonable management structure for Gulf Red Snapper. Those are the types of things that we have to allow because there's, there's never an instance where you're going to have all the data that you need at the time that you need it, especially if something starts to happen with a fishery and you look at it and go, well, gosh, it'd be nice to have some data to really figure out where, where things are going. A great example is cobia. You know, cobia, lots of attention on cobia. Listen, they're a great fish. I love fishing for them. You know, sight fishing for cobia is just blown up. But what, what comes with that is additional pressure. So the question is, is how do we manage the fishery to make sure that there are fish there for the future and not overfish uh, that, that those population of fish. So it's, it's, it's those types of things that I think are incredibly important. We have a great opportunity with the reauthorization of Magnuson-Stevens to accomplish those things. I think you're in, this is such a great answer. You're anticipating so many of the things I wanted to talk about today. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important the way you're talking about data. And I think this was one of the really important things about uh, the Modern Fish Act, because it also really articulated a need for scientific data in determining fisheries policies. And you sort of alluded to it just now when you were talking, but I've heard you speak specifically about the role of observational data and uh, how that should be brought into establishing fisheries policies. I wonder if you could expand just a little bit more on the concept of observational data, particularly when that many species are, are being uh, need to be accounted for. Listen, observational data is critical. And I, listen, I understand fisheries management managers don't like it because they believe that it's purely anecdotal. I would argue that it's not. I would argue that if you collect observational data in a structured way and say, these are the parameters we want to bring in, it is incredibly valuable data. In fact, I would argue it's as valuable a data as that that is scientifically derived through a structured data gathering effort. I, I think that there needs to be more of those efforts. Fishermen today are incredibly, incredibly advanced in how they see the fishery and how they can gather data. If you just look at the electronics that are on most boats today and the data that you could gather from that and combine that with what you're observing. And remember, that's a real time barometer of what's happening out on the water. And that's the that's that's the, the early warning system. Either something good is going on or if something not so good is going on. Why would we want to not use that data? So I think that you have to be able to use that observational data. You have to include fishermen as part of your data gathering network, as part of your, I call them sensors. They're the best sensors out there. Do that. You know what? When you do that, when you involve fishermen, all of a sudden you have buy-in from the recreational fishing community. And when you have buy-in and they know, hey, we're part of the links that are getting data in there and we're watching how it's analyzed and we're watching how these species are managed, 
I believe that you create much more of an acuity in the minds of recreational fishermen about what they should do to make sure the species thrive, to make sure we're doing things that are, in, that are helping the species, and to make sure there's that feedback loop, because I argue fisheries managers need that feedback loop from recreational fishing. What has happened in the past is that the relationship between fisheries managers and fishermen, recreational fishermen, most of the times is adversarial. If it's adversarial, there's always going to be, I think, a problem in reaching fisheries management decisions. Why not change the whole paradigm and say, no, we want, we want recreational fishermen to be part of the partnership in gathering data and then using that data to determine the best path forward. I think that may be one of the best articulations I've heard that creates the cause that the relationship between awareness and action, that you actually involve the recreational fishermen as citizen scientists to help contribute to the data. I think that's a fantastic approach. So a couple of years ago, you collaborated with Representative Mark Vesey, a Democrat out of Texas, to introduce the National Fish Habitat Conservation Through Partnership Act. Could you talk about the exigence for that bill? I think it's H.R. 1747. Absolutely. Well, what was happening is we had a lot of different efforts going on to create and conserve fish habitat. The problem is it was all fragmented. And as you know, if one state's doing one thing and another state's doing something else, then it sometimes they're at cross purposes of each other. Or sometimes you can actually you can amplify by orders of magnitude your effort if you do things jointly. And then, too, if you look at what's happening at the federal level on many decisions that are made about water quality and habitat, you look at that and you go, why, why aren't there more efforts in partnering in doing those things? Why don't we take the resources and leverage them? So instead of just doing that in one state, we do it in multiple states or taking federal dollars that may be used in some aspect of, of habitat related to fish that can now be leveraged with state resources or for that matter, even sometimes local resources and be able to do more. So, so, the, so the, the, the Fish Habitat Through Partnership Act is saying, what are we doing to really put some resources toward partnerships and leverage partnerships and actually make sure the decision-making says that, hey, if you partner with somebody else, you can actually leverage more resources that are out there to do the things that, that you need to do. So uh, we looked at that. And as we see many elements of fragmentation and what happens with those efforts, I wanted to make sure that we're bringing resources together leveraging them to a greater extent. And I believe you can get larger outcomes, sometimes by orders of magnitude, by making sure that you're partnering. No, that, that's a great approach. I want to I want to also point out also one of the things about H.R. 1747 and note that this is a bipartisan introduced bill. Yes. yes. And that a lot of big fisheries focused bills of late have really been driven by bipartisan collaboration. I'm thinking of the 350 to 11 vote on Senate Bill 1520, the Modernizing Recreational Fisheries Management Act of 2018 that mm -hmm. President Trump signed into law on December 31st of 2018. Could you talk about why fisheries bills are more often than not sites of bipartisan cooperation? Well, the, the, the membership, I think, on both sides of the aisle understand the incredible value to fisheries. And that's inland states, coastal states, wherever you may be. It's something that brings people together. And I think it goes back to the very root 
of the of the activity of recreational fishing. It's one of those things that, you know, when most folks, when they're a kid or at some point have had an opportunity to either go fishing or to learn about fishing or to hear a fish story from somebody. So it's one of those things that that unites people. And there is there there is there is not a partisan viewpoint on fishing. I think everybody can agree. We'd like to have more fish. We'd like to have more opportunities for people to fish. Those are those are bipartisan opportunities. And it's an it's an easy place for folks to go and go. Yeah, we, we, we can agree on that. I would argue that that fishing bills as well as national defense bills are the place where we see the most bipartisanship here on Capitol Hill. And it's because we all know the importance of strong fisheries, of healthy fisheries, of those opportunities for, for ourselves and our children and our neighborhoods and our communities and our states and commonwealths and our nation for that matter, as well as knowing the need and value of a strong national defense. So all those things go, go hand in hand. So, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a great place to be both on the Natural Resources Committee as a member, but also on the other side, and we talked a little bit about this earlier and the, 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 the nexus of national defense in the first district and being able to do things bipartisanly on our, for our nation's defense. That's that, you know, one of the things that's always impressed me about what you're saying now and the way you always talked about fisheries management is that you tend to speak nationally rather than only locally. That is, you certainly talk about fisheries issues important to Virginia and important to your constituents, but you always seem to make that connection to other waters and other fisheries, whether it's fishery issues in California or Florida or wherever else, and the examples always seem apropos and seem to alert anglers to the ways in which local issues are also national issues when it comes to fisheries policies. Could you talk about why anglers need to be alert to fisheries management and policy beyond their own home waters? I think it's incredibly important that anybody that, that has even, even, a, even a tangential interest in recreational fishing needs to become involved. And, and where you can start is just become involved in your state and get to know what the state's doing to manage fisheries. Uh, get to know, you know, when, when does the, uh, when does the, when is their wildlife commission meet? Who, who are the commissioners? Who are the, who are the citizens that are appointed to be part of that board? You know, when do they make decisions? How do they set seasons? How do they set creel limits? How do they set size limits? You know, all those things I think are incredibly important for folks to understand because if those management decisions are going to happen properly, then those fisheries managers need to hear from everyone, even somebody that may only fish once or twice a year has an interest in the decisions that are being made there. And the more informed the public can become, the better fisheries management decisions we will see. If it's just a handful of people, listen, we, you know, there are groups of us up, up there like, like yourself and myself that are passionate about this. And we know that we're going to be involved regardless. But I think getting more people involved, not just in the activity of fishing, but more people involved to understand what goes into assuring that when they go fishing, that there's a healthy fish population there and that they can enjoy the water uh, in the ways that they, that they want to enjoy, that their children can, can do that. The way that they accomplish that is to become involved. And listen, they don't have to be you know, massively involved, but they need to be aware and they need to have the opportunity when necessary to comment on what needs to happen in managing our fisheries. That empowers, I believe, citizenry and helping fisheries managers make the right decision. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I think that kind of citizen participation is just necessary, particularly when we have 60 million registered anglers in this country. I mean, that's that's a lot of a lot of uh, voices that, that can be heard. All right. So as much as I personally yeah. can sit here and talk with you about fisheries <laughs> policies all day, let's also talk some fishing here. OK, yes. So you've written several articles for Sport Fishing Magazine. Um, one of my favorite pieces you did back in 2018 about sight fishing for cobia. You just brought up sight fishing for cobia yes. a moment ago. Um, in that article, you're talking specifically about uh, sight fishing off the North Carolina coast. And um, clearly you love cobia fishing. And like I've said, you know, I, we've both spent a lot of time at Oregon Inlet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that piece really re- resonated with me. So I want to ask you if you'll provide us with your three best pro tips for sight fishing for cobia. And I should tell you that later in the show, um, I'm going to be counting down my top 10 cobia lures. So we'll see how your tips line <laughs> up with that part of the show as well. So gotcha. congressional tips on sight fishing for cobia. Sight fishing for cobia. Well, well, first and foremost is, is you want to make sure that you that you go to places where you know cobia congregate. Uh, that's 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 a very important part of it. And and you know, in, in the coastal areas, as you watch the cobia migration, which by the way is starting just about now, the first cobia will be sighted probably down in the uh, the topsail beach area up to Ocracoke in those areas, and then they'll move up to Hatteras and Oregon Inlet, and then it won't be long. I mean, they move pretty fast. I would say a couple of weeks after that, probably by mid-May, as you'll start to see some people see fish in the Chesapeake Bay. And you know, there's been a lot of pressure on cobia with sight fishing over the years. Uh, so they so they they've gotten a little bit smarter on things. But but first of all, make sure you're targeting where you know the cobia are going to be and at what point in the migration that you'll be able to to cross the largest number of fish. So that's number one. No, number two is 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 to make sure that you have a number of uh, setups in your boat ready to entice a cobia. Because there are days, and listen, I love throwing bucktails at them, but there are some days where they won't touch a bucktail. There are some days where as soon as the bucktail hits the water, boom, they're gone. So I'll always carry a bucket of eels with me, and I always will have one bucket with an eel in it ready to cast because if the cobia doesn't want to eat my jig, it's rare that they won't eat an eel. Uh, and with that too, listen, cobia love bunkers. So if you can, and you have to have a really active live well to keep bunkers live, but if you're going out and you see some bunkers, throw a cast net on them. I always throw some bunkers in the live well, because I have found that when you go through those, those three machinations, you do a jig, you do a, an eel and you do a bunker. If, if, if you can't catch that cobia on one of those three methods, and that cobia is probably dead. So, <laughs> so, so that's, that, that's, that's the way I look at it. And, and everybody has their own idea about color and size of bucktails. I, I will say this, and a lot of people will put uh, a little, um, you know, plastic tail on, on, a, on a bucktail. Listen, I, I did that for years, and it does give some action to the bucktail. But I had many times where the plastic tail would actually impede the hook in being able to hook up a cobia. So I pretty much have abandoned the plastic tail. Not, not that they don't impart action there, but I always tell folks is, is make up for the action that the tail doesn't impart with, with, with the rod. Don't hesitate to really jig that, that, that um, bucktail hard 
and, and make sure that when you get it in front of the cobia, then you need to slow it down because people a lot of times want to reel it away from the cobia. So reeling faster doesn't, doesn't get the cobia excited. But once you get it in front of this cobia sight picture and you see that at least they, they can see the lure is jig it. And you don't even have to reel, just jig it hard. And most of the jigs are out there and part of pretty good action when, when you jig them. So if, if, if you do that, most of the time you can get a cobia that may even be indifferent to all of a sudden light up because of that, that jig that's darting in front of him. And it's just, there's just something about that, you know, that, that erratic action of, a, of an injured bait fish trying to get away that really entices the cobia. So th those are the things to do. And then, as I said, have, a, have an eel or a bunker in reserve and pretty good chance you'll be hooked up. That's fantastic advice, and I'm glad to know that later in the show, I won't be contradicting you in any way. <laughs> All right, so Rappahannock Shad Run. Give us the strategy for the poor man's tarpon. Oh, I love it. I tell you, Rappahannock Shad Run is, is incredible. And, you know, the Shad Run in the Potomac, too, is, is, is pretty good. Uh, uh, you talk about ASA, Glenn Hughes, and I trade yeah. text all the time about, hey, when, 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 when are the hickories showing up <laughs> there uh, in, in the Potomac? And, you know, there's a, a pretty good run, too, of striped bass that come up there on their early spawning run. So uh, the Potomac is great. The Rappahannock trade, especially around the, uh, the, the, the Route 1 bridge, there in in uh, in Fredericksburg, and you can walk right there. There's a there's a Stafford County Park. You can park there and walk right down to the water. Put a set of waders on. There are a couple of little sand spit islands out there you can go to. Uh, just just take a shad dart, a little tiny nungesser spoon, uh, and cast out there. And I love to catch them on, on as lighted tackle as I can, as I have. You know, a little four pound test ultralight outfit. And there is not a fish that's more fun than a, than a two or three pound hickory shad on a shad dart, a little tiny shad dart and on, on ultralight. So they are incredibly fun. And that time of year too, you'll end up catching some blueback herring. You'll have some herring that'll come up the river then too. So uh, I, I always tell folks that uh, the, 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 from the time I was a kid and we used to go in the Mattapanai river when I was a kid and catch white shad, American shad. And, and I mean, we'd catch them up to eight pounds. And when you have those big females coming up there that were coming up to spawn, you know, it was nothing better than having shad roe for breakfast and ha having caught a shad the, the evening before. And, and, and we would bake them and, and dad would bake them slow and you'd get most of the bones. out. And they still had a little bit of those Y bones in it, but they were still in, incredibly good eating. But, um, you know, they're a, a ton of fun to catch. They're still pretty healthy populations there. We're still working to, uh, to, to look at the, the fisheries management aspect of that. Cause you know, on blueback herring, there's some pretty significant restrictions that have been put on blueback by ASMFC. So we work with VMRC because there are some areas like Chickahominy at Walker's Dam and those places where there's an incredible amount of fish that are there. And, and when recreational fishermen want to go in and, and try to enjoy catching those, you know, you'd like for them to have an opportunity, especially when there's a, a localized fish population that's, that, that's pretty healthy. I, I understand overall, you look at the population and their, and their issues there, but you look in places like uh, the Chickahominy River, you look at even places like Maine, uh, where the, the localized populations are still pretty good. The, the, the migratory spawning runs are still pretty healthy. So, you know, you, you, you want to make sure that fishermen can enjoy, you know, um, targeting those fish during those times of year. Obviously, you want there to be lots of spawning success. You don't want them to overexploit the, those fish, but it, it's, it's always good to have them come in. And even if, even if nothing else, and to say, hey, listen, catch, 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 some, uh, catch some buckshad, uh, and, 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 re and release the row shed, but, but it's, it, it's a ton of fun. It, it's, it's a great fishery. They are incredible fish. As you said, the poor man's tarpon, 
and on top of that, they're they're good eating. So <laughs> absolutely, you're, you're making me all nostalgic. You brought I did a Cub Scout camp on the Chickahominy one time, and just love that area. Yeah. All right. So from about 1983 through 1987, I worked summers at Willoughby Bay Marina at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, and the owners of that marina had two piers: one there at Willoughby, and one over at Ocean View. Yes. Yeah. Piers provided access to some amazing croaker and spot fishing. You brought up spot. And I've always been a fan of spot and croaker fishing, but those species don't get the hype that stripers or blues in Chesapeake do or cobia do. Could you talk about the importance of croaker and spot fishing in the bay? Absolutely. Well, you know, croaker and spot are those what I call barometer species or indicator species. Uh, when you see healthy populations of those species, then you know that you have a healthier benthic community, which is essentially the community that lives on the bottom of our rivers in Bay, and Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and we listen, we haven't seen spot populations like we used to. There were places you could go in Virginia. And listen, the fall spot run off of uh, Chicks Beach is famous uh, to go there. And if you if you wanted to catch a spot over a pound, which is one of those 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 species that I was always, man, I got to catch a, catch a big spot this year. Remember the old yellow belly spots, we'd call them, because in the spawning run, they, or they excuse me, in the fall run, yeah. those yellow bellies. Um, Erratica Bar up in the Rappahannock River, you know, great place. I remember going there catching big, big spot. And I'm talking about three quarter pound spot, every cast, two at a time. And there's nothing that fights harder for their weight and size than a spot. And there are great, great fish for, for kids to catch because it's nonstop. And let me tell you, I love eating spot. And there, I don't think there's anything on the face of the earth that doesn't like a spot. <laughs> any, fish, any fish out there will eat a spot and, and human beings being, being the, the, the same way. But there are those indicator species. And listen, croaker the same way. And we always see these waves of croaker. We see big impact of croaker populations and then it drops off and you always wonder why, what, what are the, what, what are the, what are the environmental conditions that cause those populations to drop off? And a lot of times they'll drop off for a decade and then all of a sudden, boom, population comes back. So it would be, I think, important for us to collect more data on spot and croaker populations. And, and I know we kind of take them for granted, uh, but I don't think you can take them for granted anymore. I would love to, to actually see uh, the marine fisheries managers look a little more uh, closely at spot and croaker populations because they are they are what I call anchor species or indicator species for the ecosystem. And listen, I, when I go cobia fishing, I, I go out to Back River Reef and go there and bottom fish, and we'll catch you know a couple of dozen croakers, and they're one of the best baits in the world for cobia. So uh, croakers are, are are the same way, and there's still you know a few of them around the bay but not at the peak that we've seen them in recent times. And, you know, there's a, and what used to be Chris's bait and tackle, it's now oceans East over in the Eastern shore. If you walk in there, an eight pound croaker is there on the wall. I, I never, I never knew that croaker would get to eight pounds, but I, I always do a double take at that croaker and go, wow, un unbelievable. So, so there are some, some, some big, big croakers out there. And, and I know too, you, you talk about croakers and spot, if you go over to, to John Bishop's place over in Yorktown, Bishop's Fishing Supply, you go to John's wall there, there are all kinds of fish on the wall, but the one fish that John is most proud of is there's a spot on the wall there that's a pound and a half, a biggest spot that I've ever seen. So, you know, you know, like you said, on my wall, lots of fish, big fish, but the ones that are, that are really the most memorable are those big croakers in big spots. I, I'm so glad you said all that. I just written an article on Kroger and the excitement of Kroger fishing. 
Um, and you mentioned Chicks Beach, man, and sent me back into nostalgia <laughs> world instantly. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. the amount of time I spent at Chicks Beach. <laughs> All right, so one more fishing, one more species question before we get into yeah. our, our traditional wrap-up question. You know, we've talked about striper fishing and, you know, cobia fishing, but we haven't talked about the other big sport fish in the bay, and that's bluefish. Yes. So, you know, give us the congressional insight to bluefishing in the bay. Well, listen, bluefish, another one of those anchor species. When, when I worked on a charter boat out of Reedville, back in the late 70s and early 80s that that was that was what i call the foundation fish i mean the charter fleet there was based on going out and catching bluefish we'd go out there and chum and all throughout the summertime big bluefish you know from 10 up to 18 19 pounds they were incredible incredible fighting fish uh listen they're, they're a little bit of a challenge to to make them uh to make them uh, taste good but you can do that i tell you blue bluefish cakes are really good uh, in different ways. Smoking bluefish is really good. So there are ways that, that you can make bluefish. Smaller bluefish, exceptional. I love taking a smaller bluefish and, and frying it up. Uh, you know, bluefish, uh, a lot of fun to catch. They're, they're uh, again, one of those species that's uh, in, in the pelagic zone. It's an indicator species of, of how healthy the bay is. Uh, I, I love catching them, especially on, on light tackle. And I can tell you, uh, being a pier rat growing up, my my basic outfit going to the pier if i did nothing else i had a spinning rod with me that had a jerk jigger on it and i'd go out to the end of the pier with a jerk jigger and anywhere in virginia or north carolina you know, let me tell you if if the conditions were were halfway right you'd catch a bluefish in fact when you had a hard northeast wind and the water got really dirty and you'd not catch anything else you catch bluefish because northeast wind just seemed to really get them get them excited so there are species that are fun to catch. They're easy to catch. They fight hard. Uh, and, and listen, the smaller ones, I would argue all of them, if you fix them the right way, are good eating. So another incredibly important uh, fish in the bay. And listen, you know, they are, they are voracious predators. Uh, I remember times being down the Outer Banks in the fall, watching them run schools of gray trout up on the beach, strand gray trout up on the beach, strand schools of menhaden up on the beach. I've lost a bunch of skin on my fingers from being bitten by bluefish, getting a little too over anxious to take a hook out to cast and, 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 and catch another one. But they're just, uh, just incredible fish, great sport fish. There, there's not a fish out that fights any harder than, than a bluefish. You, you're so you just described my entire growing up years, that spinning <laughs> rod, that gotcha jig. Yeah. Uh, we have, a you know, we, we spent an immense amount of time, uh, you know, in Kitty Hawk and Hatteras, yeah. Um, my parents will tell you, I would walk up and down the beach 13, 14 hours a day. I used to keep little index cards of how many hundreds of bluefish I could catch in a single day, walking up and down the beach in the late seventies and early eighties. Ah, oh, wow. Fantastic stuff. Okay. So that brings us to our traditional wrap up question. The thing we yes. ask all the guests on the Rodcast, and clearly you've had a lot of opportunity to catch a lot of different kinds of, of fish, both in Virginia and North Carolina and elsewhere whether it's bass in the lakes near your home, Kobe off the outer banks. Uh, you're a big winter tog fisherman too. Yeah. You like big yeah. reds, all the other yeah. species you've taken. I want to know what's your grail fish. What's the one fish out there on your bucket list that you just really want to catch? Oh gosh. Well, you know, I, I actually do have a bucket list for fish I want to catch and I've, and I have, I have gotten, gotten through those. Uh, listen, um, one of the fish I've caught, I have caught some smaller swordfish. 
but I really want to get out there and catch a big sword. And I say big sword, you know, north of 300 pounds. And there's some places in the world that you can do that. Uh, 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 there's, there's a guy down in the Florida Keys, uh, Nick Manzik does, or Stanzik, excuse me, does a great job, great sword fisherman. So I'd love to get out with Nick and get out there and deep drop and catch a big sword. As you know, Nick caught one down there, gosh, uh, eight, 800 pounds, I think it was, just just a stud. So I'd love to do that. I was watching the other day some videos of some guys in New Zealand, and, and, they're, and they're catching 300-pound swordfish like they're going out of style, and they're doing it on stand-up tackle with Talica 50s. Really like tackle, doing it stand-up. So, you know, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. So I, I, listen, I understand the guys doing electric reels because you're dropping 1,000 feet, but, um, but I, would, I would love to get out there on a little stand-up 50 Talica, I get out there and, and catch a catch a sword over 300 pounds. That's a fantastic grail fish. I want to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman Whitman, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today, but I also can't thank you enough for all you do to protect the rights of American anglers and all that you do for conservation. Thank you sincerely for being on the Rodcast today. Well, listen, I am so honored to be on the Rodcast and you know, you and I have to go fishing together. So let's make that happen. You, you're going to make that offer. I'm definitely taking you up on it. So uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, will, I will definitely do so. Thank you so much for being on the show. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Sounds Take great. Care. Look forward to talking to you soon and going fishing soon. Sounds okay. good. Okay, I hear them hound dogs barking, so we know it's time for the bourbon break. That moment when I take a break from the scalier side of my conversation and turn tail toward a bit of bourbon, or whatever spirit gets my attention. In this week's bourbon break, I want to pay a little attention to another excellent bourbon in the Four Roses family of bourbons, the Four Roses Single Barrel. But I want to be clear here, I'm talking about the Four Roses Single Barrel, not the Four Roses Single Barrel Private Selection, which is another beauty in the Four Roses portfolio. Now, if you've heard me rattle about Four Roses before, you know that I love the Four Roses origin story. This brand has been an American classic for 130 years. It's been around since at least the 1860s, even though the brand wasn't trademarked until 1888. I've recounted before the two classic origin stories about Four Roses, so I won't go into the details again here other than to recap that Four Roses was founded by Rufus Mathewson Rose, who after serving as a foot soldier in the Confederate Army, founded the Mountain Springs Distillery just north of Atlanta, Georgia. The story goes that the bourbon is named for Rose, his brother, and his two sons, hence the Four Roses. But the current distillery webpage doesn't even mention Rose, indicating that the bourbon got its name when whiskey man Paul Jones Jr. named his bourbon for that occasion where his true love done said yes with a corsage of four red roses. These are great origin stories either way, but the Four Roses brand is now owned by the Japanese company Kieran Brewery Company. Now, you probably have seen Kieran beer at sushi restaurants, and even though it's owned by this Japanese company, Four Roses is still distilled in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, where master distiller Brent Elliott oversees the operation. Post-prohibition, Four Roses was the best-selling bourbon in America. 
The Four Roses single barrel bourbon was introduced to the market in 2004, and due to its great taste and low price point, it's earned a reputation as a great bourbon. You can find a bottle for about 45 bucks, but I've seen them for 40 and even a few bucks less. Because it's considered a very affordable single barrel bourbon out there, it's pretty popular among connoisseurs as well as plebeians like myself. As to the Four Roses single barrel bourbon, the first thing you'll notice about it is its color, and I love its coloration. Four Roses uses a charred white oak for its cask, and since you can't add color to bourbon and still call it a bourbon, all of the color comes from that wood. It's like a golden hue, somewhere between a toffee and a caramel color. This color makes me want to beg lure manufacturers to stop calling their lure color root beer and rename them bourbon. Or even a nice red pattern called Four Roses. How about a Four Roses lure? Where's the bourbon love in lure colors? But the color isn't the only noticeable thing in the Four Roses single barrel. It's got a great taste too. The single barrel mash bill is a 60% 60, 60 corn, 35% rye, and 5% malted barley blend, what is called in bourbon world as an OBSV blend. So it's got a familiar base flavor of that corn with sweet and spicy highlights of the higher rye content and some of the smooth taste texture of that barley. Personally, I find the Four Roses single barrel to have a nice blend of fruity and spicy flavors. The nose on this bourbon is soft. You can pick up on its sweetness in the nose, but it's a subtle nose. That sweetness shows up in its citrusy, fruity scent with a tincture of spice from the alcohol. Now, at the first taste, though, you get that this is a subtle bourbon. I mean, it's a 100-proof bourbon, so you get that sturdy flavor of high-alcohol spirit right away. But that alcohol is smoothed out by the vibrant sweetness of the bourbon. The oak that gives this bourbon its color is here, too, in the flavor, but only subtly. That alcohol does make an appearance in the sweetness toward the end of the palate as a kind of spicy heat that I find very pleasant. There are hints of other flavors here, too, that give its reputation as a complex bourbon. But I gotta say that my palate find, in the complexity that everyone attributes to this bourbon, I find it to be more like harmony than disjuncture. I think you can start to tease out some of that complexity in the finish, which is a prolonged finish with hints of leather and the fruit that's been there throughout. The other thing you have to keep in mind about Four Roses single barrel bourbons is that Four Roses uses 10 different recipes for these bourbons. They are all that OBSV blend with the 35% high rye, rye content, but you want to check the labels for the exact recipe until you find your favorite. Okay, before we put an end to this bourbon break, and as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of my pocket, and my reviews are based on my keen sense of bourbon know-how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to an iconic watering hole with more drinking and fishing history than most of the world combined. And of course, I'm talking about Captain Tony's in Key West, one of the best places to sit and drink and soak up that great Key West vibe. Ah, if the ocean was whiskey and I was a duck, I'd swim to the bottom and drink myself up. But the ocean's not whiskey and I'm not a duck. 
So let's drink these whiskeys and get messed up. As always, if you've got comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And that is my look at Four Roses for today. That's it for this week's bourbon break. Let's get back on the water. All right, it is time for the Fishing Professor's Top 10 list for the week. Now, this week, I'm going to be counting down my top 10 cobia lures because, let's face it, cobia fishing is awesome. And after that great conversation with Congressman Rob Whitman, I've got cobia on the brain. Now, since Congressman Whitman talked about sight casting for cobia, I think I'll keep this top 10 list targeted on cobia fishing at the surface, not necessarily dropping baits to them on reefs, though most of these baits will work well in either scenario. The best cobia baits tend to be eel imitators and crab imitators, so a lot of this list will focus on those two kinds of lures, but not entirely. Likewise, there are a lot of great lures out there that are cobia baits that I just don't use a lot, so I'm not going to be able to count all of them. Instead, I'm going to focus on the artificials that I have solid cobia success with. As always, as a matter of disclaimer, keep in mind that this is my top 10 list, not a sponsored list, or not even a sponsor influence list. I have no sponsors. It is not congressionally authorized or congressionally influenced. And of course, I am always open to sponsorship payola and bribery as a manner of manipulating the fishing professor's top 10 list, which of course, as we know, is a massive influence on the lure industry. They're all listening to me, people. All right, that said, let's start off at number 10 with a kind of pro tip rather than a specific lure, but a range of lures. So at number 10, I'm going to start generically by saying that because eels are a primary attractor for cobia, and we just heard Congressman Whitman talk about always having live eels on hand when sight fishing for cobia. So let's just acknowledge that eels are a top bait and that there are a tremendous number of soft bodies out there that while not designated as eel imitators per se, they still actually make great eel imitators. I'm thinking here, of course, about longer plastic worms, the kind often used in bass fishing. For examples, worms by Bass Assassin, Cream, Berkeley, Mr. Twister, Guggen Baits, Z-Man, and so on, all of their long worms make great cobia baits. The trick is using the longer worms, at least the six inches. I also tend to lean toward three colors of longer worms for cobia, black, pink, and white. And obviously, be sure to rig with much heavier hooks than you would with these worms if you were rigging them for bass. Cobia are big, strong saltwater fish. You need harder, tougher hardware. All right, coming in at number nine, I'm going to offer up Live Target's Commotion Mullet. I love this topwater mullet design. The use of a spinner blade at the tail of the lure is a great visual and auditory attractant. And the way this lure moves across the surface is great. Plus, like we've come to expect from all of Live Target's lures, the lifelike design is really make it really makes this lure attractive to Cobia. But here's the snag. I understand from Grant Coppers at Live Target that they may not be continuing to make this particular mullet imitator. So my recommendation is if you see them, grab them as they may become unavailable. Now, speaking of live target, 
I'm a big fan of Live Target's saltwater swim bait series. And when it comes to cobia, Live Target's penfish swim bait is just deadly. And so it gets my vote for the number eight position in this top this week's top 10. Comes available, it is available in two sizes and two color options. The Live Target Penfish Swim Bait may be the absolute best penfish imitator out there. And when cast to them, Cobia goes nuts for this rugged lure. If you want to check it out, you can see my review of the Live Target Penfish Swim Bait at the Inventive Fishing webpages at www.inventivefishing.com or on the Inventive Fishing channel on YouTube, which you should subscribe to much as you should, should subscribe to this broadcast. So Live Target's Penfish Swim Bait gets the number eight spot because that's what happens to this lures. It gets eight. Hi-oh! Now, cobia are known as crab crushers. So my top 10 list of cobia-centric lures wouldn't be real if it didn't have some crab imitators in it. And so I'm going to give the number seven spot to Chase Bait Smash Crab. I love this crab design. The smash crab is just a fraction under four inches across, making it the perfect size for pitching to cobia. And if I'm going to be honest about it, reds, black drum, tarpon, and other crab eaters too. It's made from a rugged TPE plastic and weighted so that it always flips onto its belly side down. And great action in the legs and claws in the water. Comes in six color options. It costs a bit more than many other crab lures at about 13 or 14 bucks per pre-rigged uh, crab, but that is in part why I've listed it number seven instead of later in the list. Okay, so if we're talking about crab imitators for Cobia, then I have to put in at the number six position, Savage Gear's TPE 3D Crab, which first of all lists for about five bucks. They also come in a variety of sizes, two, three, and four inch versions. The small two-inch versions are just a bit too small for Cobia, but the four-inch is perfect. Plus, the TPE plastic that Savage uses is just incredibly durable, and the legs and claws give it great movement in the water. Props to Mads Grossel for another great lure design. Okay, coming in at number five, I'm going to go with one of the best soft body manufacturers out there with the Saltwater Assassins and their six-inch Sea Shad. Now, this isn't exactly an eel imitator, but its length and great wiggle action give it that eelish kind of movement that Cobia love. Plus, like any soft body, the rigging options it gives you are a lot, give you a lot of flexibility in your presentation. The Saltwater Assassins six-inch six inch Shad comes in 10 color options, but I will say that I've had my best luck with for them for Cobia in their black shad color pattern. All right, coming in at number four, I'm going to stick with the eel imitator line of thinking since Cobia love to smash eels. So at number four, I've got Berkeley Gulp Alive Eels. I love the Berkeley Alive Gulp Eel because they are scented, easy to rig, and have great eel-like swimming action. Berkeley also makes gulp sand eels, gulp eels, and power bait eels, all of which are great for cobia, but I find the Berkeley, alive, Berkeley gulp alive eel to provide the best eel impression of all of their eel imitators. At number three, I'm going with Savage Gear's Real Eels. Now, over the years, the Real Eel has earned a reputation as the best eel imitator out there. It's a tried and true cobia lure and also a fantastic striper lure. Its lifelike look and swimming action make this a phenomenal eel lure. It's available in an 8-inch and 12-inch version. The real eel comes rigged on a super strong jig head and has an eye for adding a stinger hook to the underside of the lure, or you can buy them pre-rigged with the jig head hook and treble hook on the underside already there. 
They're also available in 12 color patterns and are made from a durable PVC, uh, PVC plastic. Also, if you rig the Savage Gear real eel with a bit of weight and drop it down on a reef, it's a great cobia lure down deep too. All right, at number two, I'm putting the absolute iconic cobia lure, the hoagie eel. And here I'm talking about all of the hoagie eels, the slappy jigging series, which is a favorite among striper anglers, but it's as applicable in cobia fishing as it gets. The hoagie pro tail eel, which is just cobia candy. And I love the way that the hoagie molds this plastic body around their VMC barbarian jig hooks for a great pre-rigged lure. And of course, hoagie sand eel. Now, I'm leaving hoagie swordfish eels out of this since they're designed for deep dropping, and we're really talking about sight casting and surface fishing for cobia here. But seriously, the hoagie eels are remarkable cobia baits. I love that they come in a range of sizes from four and three quarter inches up to 10 and a half inches. They're available in a range of colors, but I tend to stick with white, black, and pink for cobia. Okay, that brings us to my number one favorite cobia lure. But before I declare the number one spot, let's get a quick recap. At number 10, long plastic worms. Doesn't matter what brand, get long plastic worms. Number nine, live targets commotion mullet. Number eight, live targets penfish swim bait. Number seven, chase bait smash crab. Number six, savage gears TPE 3D crab. Number five, saltwater assassin six inch sea shad. At number four, the Berkeley Gulp Alive Eels. At three, Savage Gears Real Eels. At number two, the iconic Hoagie Eel. And okay, so I started this top 10 with a more generic approach, looking at long plastic worms as a manufacturer's agnostic approach. And I'm going to do a similar thing for the number one spot. So the fishing professor's number one cobia lure is bum, bada, bum, the bucktail. And I promise you that I had a scripted, had I scripted this list before talking with Congressman, I, I did, I scripted this before talking with Congressman Whitman. So I'm really glad my number one cobia lure aligns with his advice for cobia fishing. And here I mean bigger bucktails. And which bucktail doesn't really matter. I also think that whether you use bucktails with added soft plastic tails, like the Buccaneer Bait Company's Bug Eye Bucktail that has a curly tail extension, or Bomber's Jig and Eel, which was made for striping fishing, but is also great for cobia too, or whether you just use a plain old bucktail, you're on the right track. So we can take Congressman Whitman's pro tip and leave the tail off and focus on the added action. We can give the bucktail when working in front of a cobia. So I'm a fan of Spro's bucktail jig, Offshore Angler's bucktail jigs, Genko's big wig magnum hair bucktail, Sea Strike bucktails, and just about any other near countless bucktail jigs that are out there. Sometimes I also tie my own bucktails, which is a great hobby in and of itself. And you can see my article in Florida Sportsman about bucktails and tying your own or repairing your damaged bucktails. So yes, my number one cobia lure is the ever classic bucktail jig. And if you really want the number one of the number one, I'd add that despite all of the great color patterns available in bucktails, my number one cobia lure is a white bucktail, just plain white. No need to get all polychromatic with cobia, just stick to the fundamental white bucktail. And that is my top 10 list of cobia lures. Hey, if you want a pro tip on fishing for cobia, Try taking a popper like a Shimano Pop Orca or a Nomad Chug Norris or Yozuri Hydro Popper or Rapala X-Rap Magnum Explode and remove the aft hook. 
and tie on about 24 inches of leader and then tie on an artificial eel like a savage deer, real eel, Berkeley gulp eel, or hoagie eel. This way you get that great tandem action of a popper creating attracting disturbance on the surface with an enticing eel swimming below. Trust me on this. I'm the professor. All right, that's it for this this week's top 10. As always, if you've got a cobia lure you think I should take a look at, or if there's a top 10 list you'd like to consider have me consider doing, feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email, and I will see about adding it to my list of future top 10s. All right, fish on. Let's get back to it. Wow, that was just plain old fishing fun right there. I am so grateful for Congressman Rob Whitman taking the time away from his busy schedule in Washington to talk fishing with us today. I, for one, am deeply grateful for the work that Representative Whitman does to protect our angling rights, and in particular for his efforts to protect the environments and habitats where we fish. Yeah, we anglers may not vote with fishing as our primary platform concern, but I do urge all voters to always look at candidates' platforms and see how they affect what we as anglers do. Okay, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The fish are biting. I say again, the fish are biting. And that just about brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week, and I hope you'll give a listen when it drops. Remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor Rodcast with everyone you know. There are so many ways to access the Rodcast. You'll find the Rodcast on our hosting site at thefishingprofessor.podbean.com and on the Podbean app, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player FM, the Samsung Podcast app, and Podchaser. As always, if you've got a comment or question about anything on this week's show, or have recommendations for future Top 10's Bourbon Breaks interviews or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you listen to the broadcast on. Hey, be sure to check out Inventive Fishing's web pages and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!